Hey guys, this is a former Major League pitcher Bronson Arroyo, and you're listening to your Morning Coffee podcast with Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Weekly music news for the new music business. Live Nation Entertainment announces support for a fair ticketing act. From Billboard, how much humanity will AI-generated songs need to be copyrightable? From Ari's take, Spotify opens up discovery mode wide, enabling artists to get more listeners and streams for a cost. And from Soul Tracks, fake songs on Spotify, your favorite soul artist did not issue a new single. Ooh. Well, the only thing I can guarantee today, Jay, is that it's raining here <laughs> and uh, we are not AI generated. This is really Jay and Mike. It really is. It sure is. And with that, mostly sure. At least I'm sure on my side. You look a little. I get that a lot. Ro- Roboto. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, Let's push the play button, because here we go. Stand by for transmission. This is London calling. Wake up! The revolution is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news for the new music business. It's the highly curated, agitated, advocated, moderated, and liberated digital music information that you need to know. We are your digital music authority. And now from our studios in Hollywood, California, here's your hosts, Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchart. Jay, I never thought I'd say this as a native Southern Californian, uh, and you, of course, have been here for many, many years, but we are under a blizzard watch here in Southern California. Yeah, um, we had snow at the higher elevations near us, which is super rare, and I just got back from a meeting in, in Hollywood, and I white-knuckled it, man. It's uh, People don't know how to drive here anyway, but you put a little water on these freeways, and it is a show. And it's a lot of water right now, so it's, uh, yes, it, it is sure weird is. and wild weather here in Southern California, but Jay and I are really glad to be here, and... It has been a busy yeah. week. I know we uh, we actually saw each other during the week, which was nice, having lunch. Yeah. And yeah. Listen to some music and uh, listen to look, 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 perusing over things you're working on. And it was, a, it was a good day. 
Yeah, always good. Uh, we don't get to do that enough. And how about that intro from Bronson Arroyo yeah. um, for the podcast this week? And, and for those of you that don't know Bronson Arroyo, he's a major league baseball player, formerly. He's, he's retired now. Um, but throughout his career, he's always played music. And uh, he's, uh, I'm, I actually, I'm going to see them uh, play, he and his band. Uh, it's Bronson Arroyo and the O4. They're playing the Innings Festival um, in Tempe, Arizona. Um, Saturday, it's Green Day, Weezer, Black Crows, Offspring, and many others. Um, Sunday um, is when Bronson and the O4 are playing, and Eddie Vedder is headlining um, that particular day uh, with uh, Marcus Mumford, uh, Mount Joy, Head in the Heart, many others. And I... Um, I wanted to tell you about the band because you just heard some of the, the music, but uh, that Bronson Arroyo and the O4, which is his band, is uh, guitarist uh, Jamie Aronson. You may know him from Miley Cyrus, American Hi-Fi, Butch Walker, fantastic guitar player, uh, bass player Ed Velasquez uh, from Juliana Hatfield, played with Graham Parker and others, um, guitarist Clint Walsh. Um, he was in the motels and dwarves and, and others and fantastic drummer, uh, Eric Gardner from Gnarls Barkley, Tom Morello garbage. And on one of the tracks of this album, they actually have, um, remember the, uh, cars keyboardist, Greg Hawks, oh, uh, one, one of my favorites, tracks. one of my favorites. Wow. Yeah. Talk about a stellar group of people. And of course, doesn't it frustrate you when you see someone who is not only successful in athletics and. And then, and then they're successful in music. It's like, really? I, I just take one yeah. of those, Jay. I would just take one of those. Uh, you and me both. <laughs> but, you know, he's such a great guy and he is genuinely talented. There are a lot of folks, uh, you know, athletes that like to play these uh, events and, you know, have a little bit of fun with it. Same with actors and some of those. And every now and then we run into some that are genuinely talented. You know, I was telling you about Ben Barnes, mm -hmm. you know, the actor from uh, Narnia, Shadow and Bone and, um, we helped him release some music and it's like, it's world-class. It's like uh, Harry Connick or Michael Buble, that, that sort of vibe to it, um, produced by John Alasia. Um, and it's just absolutely fantastic. And again, you have that same response, like, wait, really? You're super successful at this other thing and now you're going to do music too? Um, it's yeah. not as easy as it sounds, no, but it, it is, is really not. cool when that happens. It is not. And of course, uh, to be fair to him too, he was playing music even when he's playing baseball. So he's he's been doing a, a lot of both at, at one time, and of course now he's got the time to completely devote to music and really good on yeah. him, good stuff. Yeah, and, and once again that that song that you just listened to part of uh, that's called "Nights Alive," um, and that's off of his album that came out last week called "Some Might Say." So and that's, thank you, Bronson. And that's going to be a fun event out there at the Innings Festival. And and if you're yeah. not in the U.S., uh, this this uh, place in Arizona is where all the baseball teams go for spring training. So it's going to be a neat event. And it, it, I don't know, if is it run before? This is the first year I've been away. No, it's, it's been around before. It has. Okay, what a neat event. And if you like baseball and if you like music, that is where you want to be. So that'll yeah. be fun. And you will be there. Yes, sir. Um, you know, you and I were talking a little bit last week um, about Cobuzz. Mm -hmm. We were talking a little bit about high-res audio. And there's a little bit of confusion around what that even means. Um, so I talked to Dan Macta, um, this last week, who's, uh, the managing director of Cobuzz and, and we talk about Cobuzz and we love Cobuzz and two things, you know, I, I want to play you what he said, but also if you get a chance, um, 
check out, they have this new, what they're calling a magazine look and experience. And I absolutely love it. And the reason for that is um, years ago, there was a DSP called Music Aficionado. And it was my favorite because it was like reading a magazine. You would go onto their platform and it was just a series of different articles and images about different genres and moods. And as you would discover music, you could read the article and it was just such a great thing. And that's what Cobuzz is doing uh, as well. So please check that out. But in the meantime, let's, uh, let's listen in on what uh, Dan had to say. Dan, we hear terms like lossless, CD quality, high-res audio. For the non-technical person, just a regular music fan, what do these things mean? Well, they could mean different things to different people. You know, bo- bo- bottom line is there was a compromise made uh, uh, when the MP3 was introduced, trading off some quality for file size and convenience and the technology was and is pretty amazing in that it can pretty well fool your brain into thinking it sounds just great and a lot of people have grown up only ever hearing you know this kind of audio which is we term that lossy it takes, you know, everything today is recorded digitally. Everything we listen to is digital. And what happens in the process of making something into an MP3 is digital compression, which means some of the information in the original file that they had in the recording studio is taken out. And audio files and real, you know, serious, serious music listeners have never really... Uh, embrace that because in a super high-end audio system even the best lossy file uh does not sound as good as as uh you know what we now call cd quality a cd is digital but it's lossless so when we say lossless today we're basically talking about the same quality that was on a cd that is on a cd then you get into file quality that's even higher than CD quality. In the past, it's been material released in physical formats on things like SACDs or Blu-ray discs, and that's 24-bit audio. And 24-bit is, you know, all most people need to know is that's the format that is used in most recording studios today. And it's now available to consumers or has been for a long time, but now more available than ever and raises the question. If we've got plenty of bandwidth, why even bother with the compressed lossy version when we may have something that's even better than CD quality available. So that, that that's where yeah. we are today. Yeah. Super helpful. So tell us a little bit about Cobuzz. Uh, I've been a fan of Cobuzz for years um, it's part of my regular weekly store check, you know, when we're checking our new releases, uh, tell the folks that don't know, uh, you, you lead the U S uh, team, uh, of Cobuzz. Tell us about Cobuzz and your role. Sure. Sure. It's a French company that started 15 years ago as a high res and lossless 
download store, mainly focusing on classical music and jazz, and has evolved over a decade and a half to where it is today, which is still a download store. We still sell files. A lot of people prefer to buy and own their music or do that in addition to streaming, in addition to collecting vinyl. Uh, and we launched high-res streaming and were the first to do this anywhere in the world some half a dozen years ago in Europe. And we opened up our service in the U.S. four years ago. I oversee a small team. I mean, anything that we do is small compared to the giant tech companies that are also in our space. But we oversee all the operations in the U.S. and the other countries where our service operates it's in English. So that's the UK, Ireland, and Australia, and New Zealand, and the Nordics. So we've got a nice chunk of territory and countries that, you know, we try to align somewhat in terms of the music, editorial choices and direction, what you see in the US, similar to what you'll see in the UK or in, in Stockholm, but there's definitely localization and we have people in each of those markets. And, and the key differentiator for Cobas is truly this human element. We're just music fans. It's geared towards kind of a more hardcore music fan. Like I said, we have our roots in classical and jazz, and that's still a huge focus. But there's a lot of space for music that's a little bit left to center, a little bit outside the mainstream that people that spend time listening to music and focusing on music are into. So, yeah. so that's our thing. Big fan. Congratulations on four years, your anniversary. And uh, thanks for joining us, Dan. Thank you. Thank you. Always happy to come on and talk a little bit about what we're doing. Very cool. Yeah, so, thanks. and this is something that I usually go to you for Mike, you know, um, whether it's spatial audio, you know, you're the one that really brought me into that world and, um, same with, um, high quality, lossless, uh, sound, you know, we've had this conversation on this podcast before it, it really is different, you know, even for somebody with my ears and I love listening to music on a crappy AM radio. If it's a good song, yes. it's a good song yeah, yeah. to me. I'm not an audiophile, but having said that, uh, spatial audio, it blows me away and it's so good. And lossless, there is definitely a difference when you're listening to lossless uh, sound. Oh, it does. Yeah, absolutely. And it, of course, it matters what else you're doing in the in the in the chain in the value chain of music. Is it, is it good? Decent headphones? Are you listening to it? You know, on a stereo, a decent stereo. All of those things matter. Um, but in it's a what, noisy car. And that's right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so there are many instances where it, it certainly matters, and it matters to me all the time. And I think. It's one of those things too. Once you show people, you know, or you, you can teach people how to listen. And if, you know, if you kind of say, you know, kind of put people in front of a, a decent pair of speakers, you know, in the room, yeah, you can tell. You can really tell. And of course, when you, yeah. when you, when you listen to stuff in, in the uh, immersive audio experience, holy moly. That's, that's, yeah. you're humming, man. It's fantastic. So, yeah, yeah. And, and I love that there is a, a DSP option that who's, who really is front and center in terms of, of the quality issue. And it's wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. 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 
So, Jay, you know, as you know, we do this show every week, and we are so fortunate to have wonderful sponsors. Yeah, we sure are. There is uh, a heap of stuff that we need help with, and we get the help. So I do want to mention that Your Morning Coffee Podcast is brought to you by our groovy friends over at Banzoogle. We want to take the time to congratulate Banzoogle members for surpassing $100 million in commission-free sales of music, merch, and tickets through their websites. Banzoogle makes it easy to build a stunning website and online store for your music in just minutes. All the features you need are already built in, including dozens of fully customizable templates, tools to sell music, merch, and tickets commission-free, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, Integrations with Bandcamp, SoundCloud, YouTube, Bands in Town, and more so you can easily add content from your other online profiles and live support from your musician-friendly team seven days a week. Plans start at just $8.29 a month, which includes hosting and your own free custom domain name. Your Morning Coffee podcast listeners can go to bandzoogle.com, try it for free for 30 days, and use the promo code MORNINGCOFFEE, all one word, to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's bandzoogle.com, promo code MORNINGCOFFEE. Yes, and we're also brought to you by HypeBot since 2004. HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. Edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla. HypeBot and sister blog Music Think Tank are both published by live music discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. You betcha. Bands in Town, over 74 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It is the number one artist service platform connecting over 560,000 artists with their super fans, managers, labels, agencies, and artists access their own dashboard to manage and promote their tour dates across all platforms. Yeah, and we're also brought to you by Music Business Association. For more than six decades, the Music Biz Conference has really been the point of origin and inspiration and collaboration in the music business. Join us in Nashville, May 15 through 18. And in the coming weeks, I'll be making some announcements of how I will be involved uh, with this particular conference. But um, it's always great to collaborate and work with these guys. Um, so don't miss it. The Music Business uh, Association Conference in Nashville, May 15 through 18. You betcha. Big thanks to music to the Music Business Association, Bandzoogle, Hypebot, and Bands in Town. Certainly appreciate it. And uh, every week we thank them because... We really are thankful to have them on the team, for crying out loud. And, of course, I get to speak of the team. I get to hang out with not an AI individual, but Jay Gilbert, a living, breathing <laughs> music business expert. He is a music industry consultant. He's the curator of the weekly Your Morning Coffee newsletter. And, of course, a former executive over at Universal Music, Sony Music, Warner Music Groups, and Fox Home Entertainment. And my partner in crime over here and brother from another mother is Mike Etchart, longtime host of Sound and Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records. He has a lot of great stories. Warner Music, Capital EMI, and Universal Music Groups. You betcha. So, Jay, what do you say? We've got so many interesting uh, topics oh, to cover yeah. today. <laughs> We're going to start at the yes, top sir. with Live Nation Entertainment announces support for a fair ticketing act. Yeah, this kind of came down late 
and as a, a, a bunch of this stuff did. Um, and it's just such a great, uh, well, I put a link on here so you can check out the release and what it means and what it says. And we're also going to touch on, um, Bob left sets. Um, he had some really good points in his newsletter. You know, I don't always agree with everything <laughs> Bob writes and, and talks about, but more often than not, I do. And I think he's very smart and he has a really practical take on this stuff, but I'll kick it off with, you know, artists create their music and their concerts. It's only fair that they should decide ticketing rules as well. So um, as they point out, fans mean everything to artists and the best way to ensure fair ticketing experience for the live music fans is to put more control in the hands of the artists themselves. Right, and then they say artists should decide resale rules, protect artists' ability to use face value exchanges and limited transfer to keep pricing lower for fans and prevent scalpers from exploiting things. Yeah, they say make it illegal to sell speculative tickets. Scalpers use, use deceptive tactics to trick fans into spending more or buying tickets the seller doesn't even have yet. This confuses fans and should be banned. Yeah. Then they also say expand the bots act. Policymakers should expand the scope of the bots act and increase enforcement to deter those who break the law, cheating artists and fans in the process. Yes. And crack down on resale sites that are safe havens for scalpers, resale sites that turn a blind eye to illegally acquired tickets, allow ticket speculation and ignore artist rules need real consequences from policymakers to curb their bad behavior. Right. Amen. Exactly. And then, of course, the, the, one of the last ones here is mandate all-in pricing nationally. Avoid surprises at checkout and give fans the ability to easily compare prices as they shop by mandating all-in pricing that shows the full out-of-pocket cost of the ticket and fees right up front. We already follow many of these common-sense policies and are ready to make additional changes but we can't do it alone. They say we need the entire industry and policymakers to stand up for fans and artists. That's right. And they're saying that resale, just the resale of tickets is running away with the loot, as they put it. You know, the law to protect fans, you know, laws need to protect artists' control of tickets. Um, advocating for fair ticket, ticketing policies um, has never been more important because artists are actively losing their ability to control tickets in states all over the country, which is hurting fans and helping scalpers. And they talk about six states that have already passed legislation protecting resale. Right. It's Illinois, Colorado, Connecticut, New York, Virginia, and Utah. And he's all, they also mentioned six more states are considering new laws to protect resale, including California, Florida, Georgia, Maryland, New Jersey, and Washington. Why right. does it matter? Scalper lobbyists use the terms, use terms like fan freedom to sound like they are mm -hmm. looking out for consumers, but unlimited resale protects scalpers more than fans. Programs like fan to fan face value exchanges are designed specifically to ensure fans still have maximum flexibility when buying tickets, but ticket stay at prices artists set runaway resale laws make programs like this illegal. Right. And how do you fix this? Well, to truly protect consumers, Congress should make a federal law that backstops artists' ability to control their tickets. Together, we can create a fair system that benefits everyone. So that was from Live Nation. Um, they announced their support for this new Fair Ticketing Act. 
And, you know, I won't read you the entire letter, but there's a, a couple of really great points from, from Bob Lefsetz because he attended the Polestar conference, you know, um, Irving Azoff hosted a panel there with Garth Brooks, uh, Jim Dolan, McCann, uh, Derlihim, you know, about ticketing and, and Irving Azoff kicked it off by reading a multi-page explanation of the situation, you know, from the artist's perspective and, and the way that he put it is there's no show without the artist. To point a finger at Ticketmaster is to miss the point. Today, Live Nation finally fought back and announced their desire for this fair ticketing act that, that we just talked about. Right, exactly. And, you know, this is, you know, as we kind of look at this, and this has been an education certainly for us over the last couple of months as well. And, you know, sure. it, it's, a, it's a really multi-level situation. And, you know, it's easy to kind of, you know, just kind of try to look at the big company and, 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 kind of, you know, criticize them, but there's just a lot of people in the, in the value chain that have control over a lot of this stuff as well. And so That's right. it's really, it's been, a, at least I, I can only speak for myself, but it's been fascinating to kind of learn more about this. And oh, me too. And it's been educating, absolutely educating, right? I mean, one of the things Bob points out, he says the dirty little secret is this anti-ticket master legislation and hoopla. You know, he says it's generated by the scalpers themselves, you know, under the moniker of fan freedom. You know, some artists want a low price, but that bumps up against, you know, the law of supply and demand. You want to sell a ticket at a low price, but they're people like scalpers who are in the business of arbitrage, you know, they want to get that lift. Even on the paperless show, they can buy four tickets, walk three people in and make a handsome profit. So there's a lot of aspects of this that aren't really talked about. And everybody tries to point the finger, you know, at this whole, you know, live nation ticket master, but it's much more complicated than that. Yeah. And one of the attorneys was, that was on that panel, and I'm going to try to pronounce his name correctly, which I think is McCon. Del Rahim. Uh, I'm going to go with that anyway. But he also mentioned that, um, and, and others were saying there's actually already laws on the books against scalping, but they're really not enforced. And that, of course, we see a lot in just in, in society in general, which is, you know, we've got to kind of focus the enforcement side of things for a lot of this stuff because there are already laws on the books. Right. And there's so much of this. I learned about, you know, these bots and, and bots sounds like so futuristic. It's just a piece of software that can go in and actually purchase tickets and then they can buy up some of these really great seats and then sell them at a fancy uh, uh, profit. But the way that Bob put it was this is really a perspective change rather than starting with Ticketmaster, which is the end of the food chain. Start at the beginning. We've got the act. It does or does not decide to go on tour. If it does, it needs a promoter. Could be Live Nation, could be AEG, could be independent. And the dirty little secret is casinos pay the most. Generally speaking, whoever pays the most gets the act. There's no inherent monopoly in concerts. Then again, few want to get in because margins are so low and promoters construct buildings to increase their margins. So as for the price, the act decides, and we talked about this before, you know, the artist, artist management, they decide, you know, what that pricing is. You know, Taylor Swift's team decided that, you know, not Ticketmaster. And this fair ticketing act that we're talking about is about letting artists' decisions stand, eliminating any impediments. One of the interesting things of the left set's part, part two, he says, I'm not going to sit here and say there's no bad behavior in the concert business. But the problem is not Ticketmaster. You talk to anybody who actually sells through Ticketmaster, and they'll say the service is the best. And also that Ticketmaster acts as a marketing platform that far exceeds that of any other ticketing company. 
As for the quality, did you see that Barclays dropped SeatGeek and returned to Ticketmaster? Because SeatGeek wasn't up for the job. And so, you know, Ticketmaster is doing a really good job on most fronts, and uh, if not all fronts. So it it is really, really interesting. He says, like you were saying, this is a perspective change. Rather than starting with Ticketmaster, at the end of the food chain, start at the beginning. There you go. Yeah. So uh, very interesting uh, um, take, you know, Live Nation, you know, just that support for this fair ticketing act. And then um, Bob's uh, um, editorializing is is always fun. Um, The next story is something that is been really getting a lot of headlines lately, and that's AI, artificial intelligence. And we could talk for hours about what AI is and how it's come um, into being part of the music industry, but it's AI is all around you. And what I love about this particular story, because we pass on a lot of these every week, is it's written by two, um, I believe they're lawyers. Let me look at the bottom here. It's uh, James Samatero, and he's a partner at uh, Prior Cashman LLP, and, and along with Nicholas Sadie, I think is how you pronounce that. And this piece was uh, a guest column in Billboard last week, and the headline was, How Much Humanity Will AI-Generated Songs Need to Be Copyrightable? And as you guys probably know, you know, with artificial intelligence, it's, it's making leaps and bounds. It's been around for about eight years to help writers maybe finish lyrics or help with a bridge or a chorus. And lately there's, it's been getting better and better. Everybody knows about chat GPT, one of the fastest uh, um, platforms growing ever. And it's, it's on a lot of people's minds and I know a lot of people are afraid of it, but what I love about this piece is they start talking about, well, what does this really mean for the music business? Well, and how does, you know, like, like it starts, you know, how do you make it copyrightable? And we are, after all, in the music business. And so how does that work out? It, this, the article starts by mentioning that AI in music is not new. Alan Turing, who's the godfather of computer science, created a simple melody-making machine way back in 1951. Uh, George Lewis improvised a live quartet with three Apple II computers in 1984. <laughs> David Bowie experimented with a digital lyric randomizer in the 90s. And Hello World is, is the first AI-composed pop album. That was released back in 2018. So we're talking yeah. a long time. But needless to say, today's AI is far more evolved and exponentially more impactful. Uh, indirect enhancements like personalized playlists and recommendations, et cetera, have given way to direct creation tools. So this is stuff that's happening in the studio. For example, Google's Magenta wrote a new Nirvana song by analyzing the melody, chord changes, guitar riffs, and lyrics of the band's past works. That, by the way, is scary when you think about it. Jay mentioned ChatGBT receives text instructions to compose lyrics superior to those that IBM Watson wrote for Alex to Kid in 2016. So a lot of this stuff, you know, this this has really been kind of an exponential uh, growth over the last few years. And yet it's really just ramping up. Like you said at the beginning, it's really yeah, becoming right. super commonplace. It, it really is. And there are some companies out there doing some really interesting thing. Um, some of it's called generative. And all that means is that it's creating something basically out of nothing um, as opposed to just kind of doing a Google search and, and pulling things together. Uh, 
the article points out that uh, music as we know it has been prematurely pronounced dead several times over. The cassette tape, you know, MIDI, digital synthesizers, Napster, Auto-Tune, and, you know, even streaming were all received with, you know, hysteria. Uh, the current existential threat is artificial intelligence, AI. And there are platforms now where they can create the sounds of certain musicians. So if you want a guitar sound like Jimi Hendrix or Eric Clapton, if you want to, you know, have a song that's structured, like you mentioned, like a Nirvana song. And that's where this article kind of digs in with, well, where is the law today? And where do we think it's it's going? And I think it's it's super interesting. And I'll kick off kind of the second part of this, which is, the way that they see it is only quote unquote sufficient human creative input supports copyright ownership. Let me read that one more time. Cause that's really important to what we're about to cover here that only sufficient human creative input supports copyright ownership. So if you have an AI that creates something um, that's not copyrightable in the way that they're putting this forward. Right, exactly. And so, you know, we're, we, you have to talk about the Copyright Act when you're talking about all of these things. And that's really, you know, as, as the you know, article mentions at the very beginning of the article, um, the, the U.S. Copyright Office has issued instructive decisions and made AI-related copyright issues a 2023 priority. So it's really important to understand how all this works because, you know, if you want to get paid, then you've got to follow kind of a, a set of rules and instructions on how to make that happen. But of course, you know, a lot of this stuff, while the current legal precedent suggests that AI cannot author copyrighted works, the critical issue is what amount of human creative input or intervention suffices to make AI-generated musical works copyrightable and by whom? So, you know, you're, when you think about this, it's like, man, this is the, wow. the future is here. And so a yes. lot of this stuff really has to be figured out. So, of course, a lot of the, one of the problems, those U.S. courts have yet to, to answer the question decisively. The Copyright Office has drawn some basic boundary lines. Um, AI advocate Stephen Thaler filed copyright application for AI-generated artwork. The board rejected his applications three times finding that the artwork was not created with contribution from a human author and thus failed to meet the human authorship requirement. So yeah. this is kind of bubbling under, not really bubbling under. I mean, it's a forefront, but these are things that have to be considered if you want to try to get some sort of value back for these things that, that AI might be creating. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the line that really jumped out at me in this article was courts have held that authors must be human. And you just touched on that a second ago. Um, and there's so much of this, um, some of the software and these platforms um, that are launching that some of them will completely give you something that's generative, that's created. But in the music space right now, there's a couple of platforms that will help you lyrically generate um, you know, to, well, you feed in kind of what you have, maybe a verse and a chorus, and they'll help you kind of write the rest of it. Same with a melody. You can enter in some parts of your song and it will analyze beats per minute and the key that it's in right. and the instrumentation. But there are platforms out there that can, you know, write a song for you. They can help you write a song. And 
I'm not one of those people that thinks that if, if a computer was involved, that it's not art, it's not a song and it's soulless. I, I disagree with that. I think that you can create um, meaningful, powerful music with the help of technology. We've been doing it, you know, as you just mentioned, you know, since the dawn of time, technology has been a part of music. Absolutely. Um, one of the things, though, that they mentioned in this article, they said a word of caution, the Copyright Office has made clear that misrepresenting the use of AI in the music generation process is fraudulent. And although the Copyright Office solely relies on facts stated in applications, both it and future litigants are likely to soon deploy AI detecting software to verify the extent to which AI was used to generate the musical work. So you've got yeah. this AI generating tools. It. Yes. And then you've got yeah. AI detecting software. So I do. This is going coming so fast and free and, 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 and hard. It's, it's, it makes your head spin. It's mind, yeah, it's mind blowing. And, and I was talking to a music business attorney who was talking about how this is all the wild, wild west. Yes. They're just now trying to put their heads around this stuff because it's arrived so fast. So one of the questions was, okay, you have software that helps you write a song in the style of an artist, right? Let's say it's of the Beatles. So you're creating this song and based on AI, it knows that they like to use these chord structures or these lyrics, or they like this instrumentation, whatever it is. And it creates this song. Well, it's not a Beatles song. Um, it's not from one of their songs. Um, but it is pulling in this music from wherever to analyze it, which is possibly the Beatles, uh, songs. So there are, there's talk about how do you identify that and properly pay, you know, for that? Because if you are using someone's intellectual property, of course you should, you know, be paying for that, but it's, it's really new and gray. Like if you're not using their publishing or their master, how much do they get or do they get anything they should, you know, it's, there's all these new questions. Right. The article mentions that the concept of training, so AI training, and they're saying this looms as the first major battleground. So as it says, generative AI software like Google's Magenta is trained by feeding it vast quantities of content. So you'd, like you were saying, text, lyrics, code, audio, written compositions, and then programming it to use that source material to generate new material. Uh, back in October of last year, the RIAA shot a warning flare by declaring that AI-based extractors and mixers were infringing its members' rights by using their music to train their AI models. Those that side with the RIAA argue that AI's mind-boggling ingestion of copyrighted music violates the Copyright Act's exclusive rights to reproduce and create derivative works based upon one or more pre-existing works. Because generative AI produces output based upon pre-existing works, which is the input, copyright owners insist that a license is needed. On the other hand, as if this doesn't get crazy <laughs> enough, AI advocates argue that the use of such data for training falls within copyright law's fair use exception, claiming that the resulting work is transformative, does not create substantially similar works, and has no material impact on the, original's work, on the original work's market. They contend that the training data has been sufficiently transformed by the AI process to yield musical works beyond the copyright protection of the original works. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. 
And they're running into that on the image side. You know, you've seen these things on the web where you can have AI, you know, you tell it you want a, a whale that's swimming by the moon or whatever, and it can generate these images of things. And it's kind of fun to play with those things. But what they're saying is that, you know, to generate that, they have all of this data um, all of these other images or to create a song that's in the style of someone they're pulling in all of this. So what are you using for your model in your AI? And one side is saying we should be compensated for that. If you're using, you know, our images, our music, whatever. And there, this has been tested, you know, there was a class action lawsuit, you know, um, behalf of a group of artists and it was against uh, stability, AI, uh, deviant art, uh, and mid journey for allegedly infringing on billions of copyrighted images. Like I just mentioned when they were creating AI art and I mean, even Getty images recently filed a comparable lawsuit. So it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, we're in the wild, wild West again, right? It's, is that something that they're going to have to be compensated for? You can't just take everybody's work and then make new work out of it. No, exactly. But as they say at the end of the article, AI is evolving faster than the courts can evaluate how laws apply to it. The yeah. just filed art litigation that you just mentioned may provide some clarity. However, while in the fog, those creating AI generated music are well advised to stay cognizant of the legal risks and guide the artificial music making process with a genuine human touch. Yeah. So there, I'm sure, will be a lot of people trying to exploit this and a number of court battles uh, looming that will eventually kind of decide on what what is enough and what is too little. And, yeah. man, it's going to be yeah. a wild ride. What are you training this AI with? You know, we're talking about these images here. They're training the AI with all of these images. You know, what's that comparable thing on the music side if you're training it with um this, this music. Right. So we'll be following this really closely. I thought this was super interesting because it was written by uh, two legal experts and it just goes to show that it's just, it's so new that we're, we haven't caught up yet. Nope, 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 nope. But boy, oh boy, oh boy. It's going to be, this is, and I think we might've mentioned this even last week. This is going to be one of the topics that will absolutely be talked about almost every week by us and a ton of stuff coming out in, in media and boy, oh boy, oh boy. And of course, and I'm, you know, we've got the NAM show coming up in April, April, I think. Yeah. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what tools for the studio are going to be shown at that uh, event. So, yeah. uh, man, it's That's just, exciting. it's going to be exciting, but it's going to be scary too, you know? And yeah. it's going to, it's again, more and more change tools. Scary. Yeah, change is scary. And then we will see. We will continue to follow and have that discussion. So let's move on to the third story, Jay. This is from Ari's take. Spotify opens up discovery mode wide, enabling artists to get more listeners and streams, but for a cost. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, thank you, Ari Herstand. You know, he's, he always has these great articles in his uh, Ari's take blog. Um, we've had him on this uh, show as well. He's uh, just such an advocate for um, the indie artist community. And we talked about his, uh, his latest edition. I think it's the third edition of his book, how to make it in the new music business. So whenever he posts these things, I'm always really curious because I've used discovery mode and he came up with some things that I hadn't seen yet, which are really interesting. But for those that don't know, discovery mode is with Spotify 
And let's say you don't have a lot of revenue to maybe do a paid ad campaign with them, you know, like marquee ad or something like that. Um, Discovery mode has just been rolled out uh, wide before it was kind of in beta and not everybody had it. Um, And basically, instead of paying up front to promote your your song, you're you're giving up uh, 30 percent of your royalties for it. So they just take that on the back end so you don't have any out of pocket expenses for it. And uh, some people think that it's payola. Um, it's been accused of being payola. Some people believe that it's uh, a great tool um, for promoting your music and getting it in front of uh, new listeners. Um, but it, yeah, they've been slowly rolling it out and testing it uh, for the last couple of years, actually. And uh, now it's being rolled out wide. Right. And I'm sure you probably had that conversation with artists. And, you know, is it is it worth it? And... You know, Ari talks. He mentions in the article that he has actually worked with some artists that that have used it over time. At the beginning, when when you were allowed to, or when you were at the beginning before it went wide, basically. Yeah. And um, first of all, you you if you opt in, there are you can't anybody can't opt in, right? You've got to start with a record that is or a song that has been released over a certain amount of time. So you have to, yeah, you have to be eligible to put put your song in discovery mode and those songs will start to appear more often in other artists radio playlists you'll see in your spotify for artists reporting more radio plays and your songs will also autoplay more frequently after people finish listening to similar artists albums and playlists so you know it's at at face value and i can see why this is super attractive to developing artists especially if you're self-releasing stuff it's like, wow, this is, and we've talked about this before as well. You know, it's always, whether it's payola, whether it's, it's anything, artists are always looking for a leg up, right? And sometimes a shortcut. Right, right. And, and Ari talks about, he, he kind of ran a test, you know, since it's gone live, it's, it's different. There's less, there was less people or there were less people involved in it than there are now since they opened it wide. And he said an artist that he works with was one of the initial testers and has been using discovery mode for the past five months. Every month it has brought a healthy lift in listeners and streams. And he, he shows some screenshots of how that's, that's happened. And he showed that, you know, like for this one artist, you know, for clarity, this is a new artist who has released just a few singles. They started out with 800 monthly listeners last summer, and now they're sitting around 20,000. And he shows basically month by month doing this. It's, you know, it's brought in quite a few new listeners and streams overall month to month. But as of late, the lift percentage has decreased what he says quite dramatically. Right. And this should not be a surprise anybody. He says, I'm not sure if this is because they're starting to open up the program much wider. So now there's more artists opting in and more competition for the radio slots or what? Or if we included the wrong songs in the program and it hurt the overall campaign. He says, I have no idea. He said, there's very little guidance from Spotify currently on how to run these campaigns effectively. And that's something that he would appreciate if they maybe kind of stepped up on that. He said he's chatted with Spotify directly about this. And there doesn't seem to be any rhyme or reason that they're aware of or want to share as to why the dramatic drop as of late. They say there are normal fluctuations with discovery mode, like algorithmic playlists. But um, but again, he says at the yeah. end, but if regardless, if you use discovery mode, it's safe to say that you will see a bump and stream into listeners. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe less now than it was before, but it's still there. Um, but I think the obvious thing is that more people are 
are using it now, you know, right. because it's wide. Not every song is eligible for discovery mode. Spotify explains that for a song to be eligible, it must meet the following criteria. One, participating licensor uh, is the distributor of the track. Uh, the track has been released on Spotify for at least 30 days. The track has been streamed in radio or autoplay in the last seven days. Licensor really means your distributor. And uh, so far, Ari has confirmed the following uh, distributors have opted into discovery mode uh, program. And you and I, before we hit record, we talked about some that I had worked with who have not opted in. But these are the ones that Ari says have opted in. CD Baby. DistroKid, 1RPM, Root Note, Stem, Symphonic, TuneCore, and Vidya. And he goes on to say there may be others, but these are the ones that he knows about. Right. And, and you've mentioned that, you know, there are several major labels that are very vehemently against this. Um, and so it's interesting to see kind of, again, how this sort of plays out. But, you know, that number at the beginning, at least in the in the early launch where, that artist had 800 listeners and then bumped it up to 20,000. That's going to get artists' attention. And it, it, granted, it's not going to be like that perhaps moving forward, but any sort of lift, you know, what, even if it's just 800 to 8,000, that's a big lift. That's substantial. That's substantial. Right. And to get to pay for that on the back end of it and not anything really up front, um, it's still a pretty sexy right. option for, for developing it, it artists. It really is. And remember, for new developing artists or middle-class artists, they're not making a ton of money on streaming anyway. Right. So it's really more about audience growth. Um, and so how do you pay for it? Like I mentioned before, you know, it, it will cost you, but not in dollars in royalties. Spotify will charge you 30% royalties for this promotion to put this in perspective, Spotify and Apple music, other DSPs, they normally keep around 30% commission for regular, you know, paid streams. And they, they pay out about 70% to the rights holders, which is typically labels, distributors, publishers, etc. Now, for discovery mode streams, Spotify is essentially keeping about 60% of your royalties and paying 40% to the rights holders. So for clarity, only streams that come from discovery mode have the increased commission. The songs that uh, you opt in will earn their full royalty amount when they get streamed organically outside of discovery mode. Right. Yeah. No, and, and if you know you work with a lot of artists, if an artist comes up to you, do you have sort of, uh, of a a pat decision on what you think would, that would make sense with, or, or is that always a variable discussion? Like so many things would determine whether you think it's a good idea. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of factors involved in that. The first thing is if the artist and management want to do it and, uh, and the reasoning behind that, right. It's all about their goals and, and where they are, where they're at. The other thing is, does their distributor even offer it? As you mentioned, there are some, and we don't need to name any names, but there's some that, they're not going to offer this. They're opposed to it, at least at this point. And so you're, if you're working with a distributor that does allow it, like we were talking about, you know, symphonic, then that would help with that decision. And I think the other thing is we do a lot of testing um, because what's good for EDM may not be good for country or rock and every genre, every mood, every marketing plan these days is so different 
And there's no cookie cutter approach. You have to, I mean, it sounds pedantic, but you have to do more of what works and less of what doesn't. And I wish it was that simple where you could just say, oh, we'll do discovery mode on everything. We'll do, but as you and I were kind of joking around before we hit record, you know, if everyone is special, then nobody is special. And if you think of it, if everybody's doing discovery mode, that doesn't that sort of defeat the purpose. So the fact that not everybody is doing it, I think is is good at this point, but I guess that's a long winded way of saying you just have to test stuff. You just have to try stuff, test it whenever you can. Yes. And, and again, that that involves sort of strategic thinking and patience. And, uh, I know all of your artists that you work with are strategic and patient, Jay, but some aren't. And, you know, again, I can see a knee jerk reaction. It's like, yes, let's do this. Let's just jump in and do this. So over the next few months, it'll be interesting to see the results and how the results have which we think have changed, but maybe they haven't changed uh, yeah. from the early adopters. But uh, it is certainly an option for artists and, and some distributors at this point. So, yeah, the last thing I'll say, you know, just to, and something Ari actually pointed out that, you know, Pandora's had a feature like this for years um, through Pandora amp. And a lot of people don't take advantage of it, but that's one of those things that, you know, Pandora isn't necessarily in the same conversation sometimes as Spotify, YouTube, Apple Music, Amazon, but they should be. Um, They have a lot of monthly listeners there. And again, um, they've offered some of these features for a long time. So once again, uh, great resource. If if you get a chance, check out Ari's Take. Um, Always a a good place to... uh, to learn things about the uh, new music business. We love it. Totally. Absolutely. All right. And on to the last story, Jay, talking about fake stuff, because this has kind of been one of the themes of the show today, is it's from Soul Tracks. Fake songs on Spotify. Your favorite soul artist did not issue a new single. It's like, what? By the way, this was not in your morning coffee this week. This just broke. Your morning coffee, for those that don't know, goes out at like um, 4 a.m., um, on, uh, Fridays. Mm-hmm. And yes, I'm manually doing that at 4am. Uh, I'm an early riser anyway, but every Friday for the last eight years, I've been, you know, cause you want to check the wires and make sure there's nothing breaking that you're going to miss. And, and I like to do it manually because I like to see the reporting and make sure that everything's working. Pardon me if you can hear the dogs barking in the background. Um, but this particular piece, um, was from our friend, Chris Rizek, um, over at soul tracks and he tagged me, I think it was on LinkedIn and, you know, like, have you seen this? And I hadn't, and I thanked him and, um, I'll let you kick it off, but I thought it was super interesting. Yeah. So he says, so there you are checking out new music on your Spotify or title or Apple music account. When all of a sudden we're floored seeing the brand new single from Jill Scott or Phyllis Hyman or Ladisi or Chantel Moore or Kenny Lattimore. What's up with that? He says, well, you received an even bigger (laughs) shock when you clicked on the song and what you heard was a cheaply made electronic version of a song likely made using AI. We talked about that a little bit earlier with no Jill Scott or Phyllis Hyman in sight. You, along with a lot of other folks are the victim of the latest face fake song scam on the streaming services. These consist of nefarious characters trying to trick us all into listening to these songs that we expect are from our favorite singers. And if you listen to one of these songs more than 30 seconds, they get paid the approximate point, uh, three one thousandths of a penny that Spotify pays for a spin. And they try to earn as much as they can before the real artist can get the streaming service to pull the song, which can take weeks. 
or even months. Yeah. And we've reported on this before and it's, it's been a problem and there's not, I mean, these folks right here are just saying that it's by this artist, you know, this is a legacy track. And, um, what we've run into in the past is where someone would say, Oh, this is Jay Gilbert's new single featuring, uh, Queen Latifah. Mm -hmm. Right. And then people would do a search, they'd see it, they'd play it. And by the time they got past 30 seconds, Jay's already got paid and they're like, what the heck is this? So it's, it is a, a bad problem because it takes so long to identify it and shut it down. And Chris goes on to say that they've received notes from confused soul track readers. By the way, if you haven't vi- visited soul tracks, the website, it is the best site on the internet. If you're into soul music of, of any kind, yes. uh, that's soul track. So he's said that they'd re- received a lot of emails about it. And, and p- these people were wondering and, and they were just as frustrated, you know, as you are, it it gets at the the real artists can contact the streaming services and try to get the songs pulled, but it, that's laborious and it takes a lot of time, you know, weeks sometimes or more to get this resolved. And he includes instructions in this article on how to notify Spotify, by the way. So bookmark that, you know, and the, the real key here is, is going to be for the services to do a better job up front in determining the validity of submissions made under artist names and you and I, even though the number isn't the hundred thousand we thought it was, it's still around 50,000 tracks uploaded every week to the DSPs. And that's a lot every week, you know, every day, that's a lot to police and, and it's going to be challenging for that. And they said that the dark side of the automated ease in which anyone could submit music to one of these streaming services, you know, let your favorite streaming service know. Hopefully, you know, this latest fiasco can, you know, instigate a better process for adding new music. This is crazy. It's crazy. He mentioned though in, in, the, in the article that the fake Jill Scott song that he kind of mentioned had earned around 10,000 listens on Spotify in its first day. So that's about $3 in streaming fees. Uh, uh, for, for that one song for that one day, not a lot, but gosh, if you do a lot of them, suddenly you can make some decent money. And like you said, you, you typically you want to give it 30 seconds, but to make sure you're listening to whatever it is you're listening and boom, they're getting paid after that. So uh, that's right. And it's just wrong. You know, these people are making, uh, money, um, from using somebody else's name. And uh, I had one of my artists last week have a song um, that was uploaded to the DSPs. And yes, he had recorded it, but he didn't authorize it. And somebody just grabbed it and put it up under their label under all these DSPs. And, you know, I, I was trying to track down the label that put it up. And of course, you can't find them on the Internet or anywhere. Who knows what if, it, if it's even a label. But thankfully, I have a good distributor and they're, you know, sending a cease and desist and we're getting that thing pulled down. But it's whack-a-mole yes. because the moment you take that down, somebody else is putting up something else. Absolutely. No, whack-a-mole is a good, uh, a good way to describe it. Very frustrating and very challenging, but this is the new music business. And whether it's AI or just all of these fake songs being uh, uploaded, it's, uh, it's everybody trying to kind of game the system. So anyway, on that note, we do need to wrap up the show. Uh, you know, if you do enjoy our show, we hope you do. Please feel tell one friend because Jay and I would certainly yeah. appreciate that. And we also want to thank our good sponsors, our great sponsors, really, the Music Business Association, Banzoogle, Hypebot, and Bands in Town for helping us every week. And so, Jay, what do you say we go out into the blizzard that is Southern California? Yeah. 
Stay dry, my <laughs> Stay friend. dry, everyone, if you're in <laughs> Southern California. Uh, and I know the rest of the country, at least in the, here in the U.S., is under a, a lot of uh, foul and inclement weather. So on that note, Jay and I do say thanks for listening in this week. We appreciate it. And we will be back next week on the Your Morning Coffee Podcast. You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.